This episode is supported by Iron Galaxy Studios, an independent video game developer based in Chicago, Orlando, and Nashville. Iron Galaxy works with the best studios in the industry as a co-developer for the most beloved games on the planet. The talented people who work at Iron Galaxy get to challenge themselves with a wide variety of projects, including original games like Rumbleverse, their brand new Brawler Royale. Review open positions at irongalaxystudios.com careers. Hey everyone, I'm Trent Custers, co-founder and director at League of Geeks, and this is The Game Maker's Notebook. Thanks for joining us again today. Yesterday, I had a wonderful conversation. It was an absolute honor to talk to legendary game narrative designer and writer Josh Sawyer of Obsidian Entertainment. He has most recently been the game director on his little pet project over there, Pentiment, which went on to get a 10 out of 10 from IGN. It's getting rave reviews around the place. It's a phenomenal game. I'm sort of halfway through it at the moment. I do suggest you check it out. Don't miss it. But anyway, we start the podcast off by talking about the strange and uncanny coincidences, and there's a lot of them, that led to him getting his start as a web designer back at Black Isle Studios in the 2000s, early 2000s, I think it was. And then we work through his career and his work on legendary titles such as Icewind Dale 1 and 2, Neverwinter Nights 2, uh, Fallout New Vegas, Pillars of Eternity, the list goes on. We also speak about how Josh went about successfully pitching a title as quirky as Pentiment, his historical narrative murder mystery title set in 16th century Bavaria um, to Obsidian and Xbox Game Studios. And then we speak about that game and the immense amount of detail and love and care that that small team of 13, I believe it was, over at Obsidian poured into that title. Um, just fair warning, we speak about fonts and font tech in quite a lot of detail. So something for the tech artists out there. Uh, and then lastly, Josh gives us some sage advice on how to look after ourselves and others whilst doing this crazy thing that we do. For any cycling aficionados also, these first three minutes are for you. Uh, I hope you enjoy the chat. I had a wonderful time catching up with Josh and chatting with him. Enjoy. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Hey, Josh, welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> of course, of course. Now, um, I actually, I sent a little, I sent a little um, Slack post to my team and I said, hey, I'm interviewing Josh Sloyer tomorrow. I'm over at Obsidian um, and I grabbed, you know, grabbed your Wikipedia page or whatever and just said, this is him. You know, if you have any questions, let me know. I'll see if I can sort of work him in, which is my cheeky way of getting really insightful questions from my team. And it was you, the photo with your Wikipedia is you working on a bike Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you got a tire like right in front of the screen. So the first question is like that, that by your, you now look, you've got cyclists written across your chest, avid cyclist, <laughs> I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been hard in the last um, couple of years because, mm. uh, well, a lot of reasons, but one of the big ones is uh, it's been hard to get bike parts. Um, oh, I do. Right. Of course they I do. do the shipping like woes of COVID oh, as well. 
Yeah, it's crazy because um, when so many things were limited and outdoor stuff was generally like safer, (laughs) like (laughs) at least early on, it was recognized like it's probably safer to be outside um, if you're going to go do stuff. And so like you can't go to gyms and can't do all the stuff. So cycling became really a, a focus for a lot of people and e-bikes. And the thing is both traditional bicycles and e-bikes, mm-hmm. uh, there was a huge boom. Like, I think we haven't seen a boom like this since the seventies and, um, all the shops were completely slammed. Um, all of the, uh, sort of pipelines for manufacturing and, and shipping stuff mm. were really disrupted. They were overloaded and disrupted. So, you know, for example, uh, I, and now I, I still feel bad saying this cause I'm, I still haven't built it, but <laughs> just before COVID my friend and uh, my co-writer on the project, Kate Dollarhide, um, who is also a cyclist, she, I helped her, uh, source all the parts. I'm sorry, 98% of the parts to build a bike. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I didn't have spokes. Oh no, you just so couldn't get sparks. <laughs> I literally couldn't get them. So, so I had hubs and I had rims and I had tires and I had rim tape and I couldn't get spokes and nipples to actually, because I build all the wheels for, yeah. for my bikes and um, shops couldn't do it because they were so super slammed. It was like yeah. a wheel build for them was always like five or six weeks out, Oh wow! which is crazy. And so we just never got around to building the bike. <laughs> so <laughs> she, Is that the bike behind you? Just <laughs> No, that's a different, but that bike I also bought, um, I bought that frame set just before COVID. And, um, and that is like, it's a weird, it's a mini velo. So it, it uses like BMX size, um, rims and tires. So it's, but it's, but it's kind of like a travel bike. Um, that's what I'm going to use it for when Mm -hmm. I build it, but it was just (laughs) like, I can't even, so I couldn't even repair my bikes. And I had a bunch of, I had some spoke breakages. I had, I think a rear derailleur break. I had some problems with crank sets and I, like I said, I can do all the work on my own in my garage, but I couldn't get parts. And, um, so I started weightlifting. But I also, I had injuries. Um, like I broke my wrist. Uh, I injured this wrist with a, a lunate bone bruise. I crashed my bike and I couldn't ride. Like I had horrible road rash. I had COVID. Um, I just got over some other stuff. It's it's been it's been rough, but it's, I'm trying to get back into it. Well, I I, I do want to come back to the outdoor stuff because I, I know you're an avid outdoorsman at some point, and you've been. And this is my segue into you know usually how we open the show, which the show, sorry, which is you know, my surprise you is not cyclist chat, bike chat, <laughs> um, but it's talking about games and how how we got into games, our first experience with games, and you're someone who's been in the industry, <laughs> you know, like you've got some classic classic titles under under your belt you know like think 2000 is the first credit i've got here over 20 years and the industry is it can be a tricky thing and making games you know you're indoors a lot of the time and balancing that out so i'd love to chat chat about that a little bit later on but for now let's dive right back to the start so josh little josh little, little baby josh when was the first time that you you know games became a part of your life when they when they kicked the door down and made their way in um i think that the first you know, like little experiences I had, um, you know, I, I'll say this with, with some, um, 
clarification. My family wasn't impoverished, but we were kind of poor. Yeah. And so we couldn't afford uh, like really fancy stuff. So we had, I remember we had the, God, I should have looked it up because I, I remember answering this question recently. Radio Shack, which was a, a chain of electronic stores in the mm-hmm. U.S. that yep. I think is gone now, or if it's not gone, they're like almost <laughs> can't find them. But um, they had uh, they had a version of Pong. Essentially, it wasn't Pong. It was like great value Pong. Yes, and you know it had the it had the main paddle and mm-hmm. then the little paddle, and you would run it to your UHF in the back and turn it to channel three and and run it there and my brother and i would play that and that was like the first video game experience that i had and that was fun and then my brother for christmas one year my grandmother bought him an atari 2600 and so we played uh a lot of the classics we had pitfall and adventure i think adventure was like the first one that i really got into Mm -hmm. and that's the one where you're just a little square running around a yeah. maze and there are <laughs> yeah. the duck dragons attacking you and you can get an arrow and stab them and you're trying to get a chalice. And uh, I had a lot of fun with that, but I don't really think they had taken hold of me. Like I was like, okay, games, these are fun. These are cool. And then I remember in um, uh, the mid eighties, I was at the public library because again, I couldn't afford a home computer or my family couldn't afford a home computer, mm-hmm. but I lived very close to a public library in my hometown that had a really nice library and it had uh, Apple IIe's and it had Commodore 64's. And I had played a bunch of games on the IIe's because those were also at my grade school. Um, and so I had played Oregon Trail and Dark Tower and a bunch of other games. But then I saw on the Commodore 64, I saw an older boy playing Bard's Tale, the first Bard's Tale. And I was really blown away because it's, it's color. Yeah. The sound in the Commodore 64 was way better than anything I had seen on an Apple II or a PC. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, what is this? And so I started talking to that older boy and we became friends. He introduced me to uh, Dungeons and Dragons, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And then I really got into computer role-playing games and tabletop role-playing games. And uh, yeah, I've just been playing them since since then. I love it. It's a classic story of D&D panic as well, like older boy yeah. at the arcade, like influencing you, like <laughs> introducing you to D&D. Yep, exactly. And it's, it's funny because that's not, it wasn't my first introduction to D&D. I had actually, I had a friend who, um, I had a friend who had a PC and mm-hmm. he would play wizardry and a few other games. And um, we would just, you know, play together. Like that was a very common thing when I was growing up is, friends even after i got a computer like we would go over to each other's houses and it was it was cool to like sit around the pc and kind of play and talk to each other while we were playing mm-hmm. and um my friend ryan who who had uh, would play ultima and he would play wizardry he had basic and expert dungeons and dragons which are the kind of like precursors to AD&D yeah. and it was i didn't know that AD&D existed and so it was the older boy it was like he, you know, like opened my third eye and I was like <laughs> advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and that's, it was, so it was kind of funny because I, I did play a lot of basic and expert D and D, but then, uh, yeah, now AD and D. And that was like really when I started going off the rails. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how many people just found their, found their bridge into, into games and especially game design. Like how long did it take you to pick up the, the DM mantle? Oh, um, you know, it's interesting because I I feel like when we were kids, especially playing basic and expert, uh, we were just constantly trading off. Like, um, 
Oh, interesting. Not, you didn't have like one of the friends wasn't like the DM. You were just sort of taking it in turns. Oh uh, yeah. We were kind of just uh, handing it around. And then yeah, cool. in, high, in high school when we were playing or middle school and high school when we were playing AD and D, we had different campaigns, but we were all kind of rotating. So mm. there were different characters in different campaigns, but like my friend, Chris Hake would run some games in Dragonlance. Mm. He really liked Dragonlance. Um, I would run some in my homebrew setting mm. because I was doing that shit even back then um <laughs> my friend jody would run like really cool games my friend brian would run his own games and make his own systems yeah and um yeah it was very common for us to play in each other's stuff and dm each other's stuff and mm. i i love dming but um i didn't want to stop playing so <laughs> i was glad that i was glad that we had i had friends that would run sometimes they were solo or small campaigns or sometimes big group ones but yeah. um yeah, there wasn't like one player that, um, I mean, I guess I was kind of the de facto DM, but yeah, okay. every, like so many other people were running games that I never really thought of myself as like the DM, I'm the DM of our friend group. Yeah. So it, it's the interesting thing about D and D and your, like, as I said, it's a common story, you know, like game writers, game designers, you know, game developers start with D&D. That sort of gets them into the homebrew game creation, so to speak. But your path led you directly to D&D in video games as yeah. well. So how, what happened between there and there? What was your path to games? How did it come about for you? Because I know everyone's entry around that point of time into games, it wasn't just a clear path, like go to college, then get your game design degree and then walk in. How did you happen to find yourself over at Black Eye? Oh man, it's so weird. I, I mean, I have to say through all of this, like it really was luck. Like so I much of it is right when you look I, back I, on these things. Oh my um, God. I could have very like there at, at each step that I'm going to describe something could have gone slightly differently and it, I never would have happened. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's very weird because it's such a strange course. Like I, my father is a bronze sculptor mm -hmm. and I wanted to be an illustrator for most of my young life and going into high school. I really wanted to be a fantasy illustrator. I loved mm -hmm. the uh, TSR artists, especially because I was so exposed to their work all the time in the books, yep. but like Larry Elmore, Jeff Easley, Brom, uh, Rob Ruppel, Clyde Caldwell, like Keith Parkinson. These I just was like, these are incredible. And I was like, I want to do what they do. And my father's an artist, so he was very encouraging and helpful to me. And then around high school, I started drifting out of it because I'm colorblind. And when I started to need to paint, uh, it was very frustrating for me to paint skin tones. Very, very difficult. And I Did you I, discover that during that process or did you know that you were colorblind going into it? I knew it? I was colorblind, but I was able to work around it usually. Um, until you hit it, that point, right? Until I hit the point where yeah. now it's painting time and you have to start to learn how mm. to paint with acrylics, paint with oils. And I and because I wanted to illustrate like and the thing is like D D art is about characters. Like yeah. so many of these things, like covers to the you know, Dark Elf trilogy, like mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to do that. I wanted to portray my characters, like characters and stories mm -hmm. and skin tone and hair color and like mixing. And it was very, very hard for me. And um, I got really discouraged and I started kind of drifting out into other things. But because my dad knew how passionate I was about this, he had taken some jobs. It was a very, this is going to sound like really crazy, <laughs> but um, so my dad started doing restoration work for the city of Lake Geneva. 
which is where TSR is. Where right. I, I grew up in Wisconsin, so yeah, okay, right, yeah, like thirty minutes from Lake Geneva, maybe. Mm-hmm. So I guess Lake Geneva is full of vandals <laughs> who kept like <laughs> defacing a bunch of their statues, and my dad uh, was was restoring them. And at one point, he wound up working on a sculpture project with Jeff Easley from TSR, and I was like, "No, like, <laughs> no way!" How and old were you at this point, Josh? I was, um, I think maybe when he first started doing it, I was 16 or 17 and I was losing it. But like, by this point I was kind of getting out of art, but I was still just held these guys in awe. Yeah, they're heroes. And, and so, um, I got to go to, I got to go to TSR. I got to walk into the studio where the artists worked Mm -hmm. and I was shocked because one, they all worked in one room, which I thought Mm -hmm. was unreal um there's a lot of stuff about that was not good from my perspective like like they really weren't paid that well they were all staff artists they didn't have the rights to any of their work yeah and i remember it's funny because my dad is a very blunt man (laughs) and he'll just ask things like like i remember looking on the wall of jeff easley's workspace and there was the original oil painting for um one of the books of the dark elf trilogy Mm -hmm. like exile and i'm like what the fuck man like <laughs> that's it like that's the painting yeah. like i read this book over and over and like that's it and my dad just says how much you get paid for that <laughs> and you're like dad <laughs> I, like even then i was like i don't think you're supposed to ask that <laughs> and he said and he said and he, i can't remember what he said but i remember both me and my dad because i my dad was very open about like all the you know because he's constantly negotiating stuff for yeah he's a freelance sculptor yeah And I was like, "Mm." and my dad was like, well, how long did it take you to make? And he was like this long. And my dad was like, that doesn't sound like a good deal. (laughs) And then, and then, but my dad said like, but you have reproduction rights of it, don't you? And, and he was like, no. (laughs) And and so I was like, wow, this kind of seems like it sucks. Um, (laughs) I think since TSR is kind of gone now, I can say this stuff, but, um, but, um, Anyway, like that experience was, was really crazy, but I got to yeah. meet like a lot of those artists and I was just over the moon. And then I was at Winter Fantasy. God, so I must have been maybe 16 because I went to Winter Fantasy, which was the winter version of Gen Con that was oh. in Milwaukee because um, Gen Con was getting really big. Yeah. Um, and my dad called me and he said, hey, Rob, Rob Ruppel, artist, mm-hmm. um, who has now done tons of stuff in video games. Yeah. Um, said rob was wondering if you could be a model for one of his paintings and i'm like (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) so so i went to tsr and um he worked extensively from from models and his wife at the time was an incredible sculptor so she would actually sculpt little maquettes of incredible detail and he would photograph them and then paint them oh wow they were so detailed it was incredible and so i posed and i remember and maybe I'm going to get some more people in trouble. Uh, we went and Clyde Caldwell actually had some of the swords from his artwork made into real swords. Oh, wow. And as a prop, Rob <laughs> took one of the swords without asking and said, like, here, like, pose with this. And he said, if you ever see Clyde again, do not tell him. That I <laughs> and, and so I posed, <laughs> yeah, I, I, posed, I posed with it. So all this story, by the way, is going to come back later. So like I posed mm-hmm. with it and um, he took the photos and then later he showed me 
like it was being used on a module, a Dragonlance module called Knight Sword. Oh, awesome. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. And I'm not that big on it because it's it's a dragon. Yeah. Okay, that right, was like yeah. his wife's sculpture photographed and breathing fire. And I'm I'm it's about it's about um squires who are gonna become knights of Solomnia. All right, cool. And I was like, and yeah, you were his so squire cool. model? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was cool. like I was like, oh, this is so cool. You can barely tell it to me, but if you squint, you're like, okay, that's Josh. That's Josh like 30 years ago. Um <laughs> but then um so time passed and like, whatever, that's, that's one event that I'll come back to. But I went to college and I actually went to college for music. Um, I grew up singing <laughs> with my dad. I started mm-hmm. doing more and more music stuff in high school. Then I went to the Lawrence Conservatory of Music in Appleton, Wisconsin. So was it a musical family? You say singing with your dad. Your dad was an artist as well. Which- yeah. And my, my dad played on um, my dad and his, uh, he had a couple of bands that he was in. He had a friend who was uh, uh, ran a bicycle shop, which is how kind of how I got into some of the cycling, yeah. uh, Tom Klein and he, they were Sawyer and Klein and they were an ac- acoustic music duo that would oh, play around name. just, just like local. Yeah. And, um, they would play at like local bars and stuff like that. And a lot of singer songwriter stuff. And my dad has a beautiful voice and, uh, plays guitar wonderfully. And, uh, I never learned to play instruments, but I, but I did learn to sing with him. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, like I got into, I got into high school and uh, I didn't, I had not done any sort of formal school stuff with music mm-hmm. and I started doing really well in musicals and choir and uh, won some awards for that. And then I was like, oh, maybe I should go to school for music. <laughs> so I went, I went to Lawrence <laughs> University, the Conservatory of Music for voice, but um, because I didn't really have a strong foundation in theory mm-hmm. and I didn't have very good keyboard skills. Um, it was very hard and I was very lazy and, um, I will say there were other students who had a similar level of, um, lack of knowledge of theory and keyboard and they just worked really hard and they got through (laughs) it. I didn't, um, like I wasn't ready for that level of, of commitment. I loved singing and I loved my voice lessons and theory was rough and keyboarding was rough and it's a really heavy course load and, um, they expect a lot out of their, out of their music majors, especially the performance majors. So, um, I was like, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> and I switched, I switched over to, um, I switched over to the college and I had always, always liked history kind mm. of abstractly. And I got into like historical fantasy through Darklands, a 1992 mm-hmm. game that was sort of the long-term inspiration for Pentiment. Interesting. And I also done a lot of theater. I should have said I was initially a music and theater double major. Yeah, okay. um, and I had done, we have a thing in the Midwest called forensics, which is uh, kind of like dramatic interpretation performance. It's uh, huh. public speaking. It's not, it's, it's kind of a lot of stuff combined, but it's, it can be, it can be acting. It can be recitation. Um, it's not musical. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did a bunch of what's called dramatic interpretation, which was a lot of soliloquies from Shakespeare's histories and that kind of got me interested in the relationship between history and theater mm-hmm. and looking at how Shakespeare used texts, historical texts like Holland's head, which are very biased as the foundation for the, the Henry ad, uh, the Henry, the fourth plays, Henry, yeah. the fifth, Henry, the sixth, um, and a number of other works. So I had this kind of continuity of like music and theater and then history, which was kind of backing a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I got into history and I didn't really know what I was going to do with it, but I knew that I really <laughs> liked it a lot and I wanted to study more of it. And um, I was never a good student in college, 
but I did really genuinely love the subject matter and I loved a lot of my professors. And um, it's funny. I remember a friend of mine said like, God, what did he say? It's something he's like, he's not, he was talking about me and he's like, he's not a, He's not a very good student, but he is an academic in that, like, <laughs> like I love, I love this stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. um, and, but I was like always the, the, the rotten apple. Yeah. I just my, don't know what to do with that, with that love for yeah. it. Yeah. And, um, and so during this time, I, because I don't know why I just started getting into HTML because it was the mid nineties <laughs> and I taught myself HTML and this time there weren't there weren't WYSIWYG or graphical editors yeah. for web pages. You had to code by Just hand code them, yeah. in Notepad, basically. Yeah. Like you didn't even really have good environments to edit this stuff, and it was all markup and like great, do it and run it and or like load it. And yeah. if there are errors, you go back and fix it because there's nothing to debug or fix anything. And um, and I continued doing Photoshop stuff because I had always been into using computers for graphic design. And I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm yeah. that good at it, but I had something of an artistic background. So I kept doing that. And then in the, toward the end of my college days, when I almost dropped, I almost dropped out at one point, uh, my friend, Anne convinced me not to drop out, which I will be forever <laughs> grateful to her because I don't <laughs> think you, it would have gone well. Yeah. And um, so I stayed in and I got my degree barely. And <laughs> I, I did not know what I was going to do with it. Maybe in my mind, I thought I was going to do dramaturgical work. Like, okay. you know, because I, I did wind up getting a um, theater minor. Um, I was, mm-hmm. I was actually, I will say I was the first theater minor in the history of this university because they never had minors. <laughs> they didn't have minors until like two years before I graduated. So I started with a history major or I'm uh, sorry, a theater major that kind of got downgraded. And then I was like, well, I'll just do the minor and I'll be the yeah. first minor. Yay. Yeah. Um, but I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. I, I, I thought maybe because I was getting into tattoos, mm-hmm. maybe I could be an apprentice at a tattoo parlor and maybe mm-hmm. the color limitation wouldn't be as bad. I don't know. I, I don't know what I was thinking, honestly. But um, And how old are you around this time? You're in your early 20s? Early 20s, yeah. yeah. And, and um, so, so it all checks out, having no idea, <laughs> no idea yeah. what to do with your life. Completely and checks I, out. Yeah. I, taught, I had taught myself Flash animation. So oh. this is Flash 3 around, yeah. you know, like the, the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And I was about to graduate and I thought, I thought I was going to go work for a local ISP doing web development. And maybe I was going to get an apprenticeship with a tattoo parlor I had done a website for in exchange for tattoos. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> So I really did not know what I was going to do. And then my friend Michael, by coincidence, again, like, again, each step here is like luck after luck. My friend Michael said, hey, Josh, there's Interplay is hiring for um, a webmaster position for some new RPG they're working on. Maybe you should apply. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I had done lots of, by this point, I'd actually done a fair amount of professional web development, just freelance. Um, and were so, you playing like Fallout and things like oh, this at the time? Yeah, I or? should say like through all of this, you're just I'm playing mainlining video games as I well. I mean, there's yeah. A, yeah, like the reason I had a 2.4 grade point average when I graduated <laughs> is because I was playing video games all the time. There was a point where I was in four tabletop role playing games per week. Yeah, um, like I was running two of them, and then I was playing in two of them, and I was playing video games. <laughs> like I was just. And, um, and doing other stuff. So, uh, not going to class necessarily. So, you know, like I, 
I, yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do. I squandered a lot of my time, um, which again, this is why when people ask like how I got into the industry, I'm like, don't, it's not a blueprint here. This yeah. is not a template for anything. Um, <laughs> but, um, the webmaster role. Yeah. The webmaster role. So I applied and I got well, another thing I would not say to do. I wrote a four page cover letter <laughs> Good. where I was like, right. this Keep in mind, this is for a web development position. And I was like, here's where I think role-playing games are going to go in the future. <laughs> Who the fuck are you? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's like, this kid's definitely going to stay in his lane if we hire him, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, I, again, just like completely ridiculous. And then um, there were... 62 applicants. I remember this very clearly. There were 62 applicants. Yeah. Um, three of us knew Flash. Wow. And they really wanted, because it was so new, and they really yeah. wanted people that knew Flash. Also, I had professional, well, not well done, but like for the time, I had actual professional websites I had done for clients using Flash animation. For um, tattoos. For tattoos. <laughs> well, and, and, for, and for other, like an ISP and some yeah. other stuff. So they were like, oh, this guy actually knows how to use it and do scripting and yeah, other stuff. Yeah, he's not just doodling around in it. Yeah, or he's not just doodling yeah. around. So the first choice um, was not me, but that guy declined the job because he wanted to go move to Seattle to be with his girlfriend. <laughs> thank you, so random I, applicant. Thank you, guy. <laughs> so I was the second choice and they offered me the job. And um, it was about the 25th anniversary of D&D, I think. It was the 25th anniversary of D&D or AD&D or something. But they sent me a catalog. So um, to prep me for the position, they sent me a bunch of materials. And uh, TSR actually sent it to me. Oh, wow. And I didn't know at the time before I got hired, but it was for the Planescape Torment website. Mm -hmm. That was like my first job. But they sent me all this stuff. And at the top was a catalog, the 25th anniversary, TSR, whatever. And it's a painting of me. It's like it's this painting it's of painting you, of the squire, Josh the from, Squire. Yeah, from like seven years ago or whatever that Rob Ruppel did of me. And I was like, what? So it gets crazier. So then I was like, wow, that's surreal. It wasn't important. I was just like, this is so weird. Did you so have then, one of those moments, you know, when things like that happen where the coincidence is so uncanny or intense that you think it must be like did you think that they were sending it to you on purpose or trolling you? Was there a moment of like, I was, your I was brain just kind of just stunned. Not... I was yeah. like, I don't know exactly. what's going on. Um, and it's a really cool painting. It was just on this really fairly obscure module. So then right after I graduated, two weeks later, I flew to California, like wow. incredible. Like I graduated just bare, like just a, just a, <laughs> like I, I was on academic probation twice. Like I just was stumbling forward through college. And then I moved to California and I started as a webmaster and I, I got right into it and I did, I do feel like I worked really hard as a webmaster mm. and um, I developed the website for Planescape Torment and uh, which was fantastic. And then I became the webmaster for all of Black Isle. So I developed the websites for Baldur's Gate 2 <laughs> and Icewind Dale, which I eventually yeah. wound up working on. And then also the pre the pre Bioware acquisition of um, Neverwinter Nights. So yeah, wow. um, the original website for them, which was yeah. crazy. Um, and did and, you enjoy this work? Like, were you just oh, or did, were you yeah. sort of constantly, was there any sort of notion of looking over the fence at the game development side of things or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You knew was, that you wanted to be there. 
Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say it was it was crazy, too, because, like, I didn't really have any conception of how games were made. Mm. Like, I knew people made them, obviously, but I didn't know what the staffs looked like or what the jobs were. Yeah, isn't that um, amazing? I was the same. Like, when I – that's when I – decided that I wanted to be in games because I watched some random video online about what a game writer was. And I was like, oh, I can, oh, that's me. I'm a writer. I can do that. And before that, I'd played games my entire life, but just kind of thought they came off a magical conveyor belt or something. Yeah, <laughs> I, it was weird. And I, I even had some sense of like Michael Cranford and Brian Fargo as like individual people I was aware of through Bard's Tale yeah, and all that stuff. But like, I really still didn't have an understanding. And um, when I got there, I really wanted to work with the dev team as a webmaster. Mm-hmm. Um, I did enjoy doing the web development. I don't think I was great at it or anything, mm. but I did have the skills. I did work, work hard. I did care a lot about the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was working with the people on the dev team, I started realizing like, I think I could do this. I was like, yeah. I think I could be a designer. I started yeah. to understand what a designer was. I'm like, I think I can do this. Yeah. Right. Um, like I don't have the technical skills to understand the tool set, but it doesn't seem like any of these other people do either. Like they're just, <laughs> we're, we're all learning. We're all as learning these proprietary yeah, tools as we go. But I'm like, I have the D and D background. I have the forgotten realms background. Um, and how, and how old are you around this point? Like you're, you've, it's still, you're early to mid twenties still, right? Yeah, just 20, college. yeah, I guess I was 24 ish, yeah. 23, 24. Mm. And, um, so then I had a day where something clicked and I, I was telling someone about this, this crazy module that I was the cover on <laughs> and I pulled it out and then I looked at it and I realized, oh shit, the person who wrote this module works in black Isle. <laughs> It was, it was Colin McComb, who was one of the main writers on Torment and then wow. went on to do – he's still doing crazy stuff. Um, and I went over and I was like, Colin, do you know who this is? And he was like, no, I have no idea. And I'm like, that's me. And yeah, I told him the whole story and he was just like – he's like, that's crazy. Um, wow. So, yeah, it really came all the way around. And um, But no, like at a certain point on Icewind Dale, I had been talking with Fergus Urquhart, who was the head mm-hmm. of Black Isle. He's still my boss now. One of the founders, um, right? Yeah, one of the founders of Obsidian. And uh, I just convinced him, or maybe I convinced other people in the studio, like I knew what I was talking about. I was really enthusiastic. And he said, okay, you can do junior junior design work on Mm -hmm. Icewind Dale as a designer. And that was it. (laughs) Wow. There it is. That's how it all started. Amazing. And so that, do you remember the kinds of conversations that you were having with people or, cause I think back to when I first, so I did a short stint in games journalism and I was at a conference, uh, you know, the national sort of games conference here in Australia. God, what, like almost over 15 years ago or something now. And I remember talking, just, you know, drinking at an event, talking to some game developers from a local studio here called Taurus Games. And I happened to be talking to their lead designer and lead animator. And I went on a rant about GoldenEye <laughs> and like why GoldenEye was such seminal, like FPS design at its time. And even in the context of a console and, you know, as a licensed product and blah, blah. And then I got a call the next week and they were just like, hey, we've got a design gig. Um, but it's for a project that we need a writer for and we don't have a writer in the building. So do you want to be a designer writer? And I can remember that exact conversation. And it's funny that you say, you talk about the degree to which luck plays in these things because it's just like I could have just been talking to someone else at that yeah. party or yeah. not decided or been like, oh, I, won't, I won't bother these guys with my random golden eye rant or something. Uh, it's just absolutely 
incredible how much you know and then of course there's a you know there's an amount of privilege that plays into these things in in different ways absolutely and, and forms you know it's it's just amazing how especially before there was this sort of this pipeline of college that teach especially ones like digipen and you know rmit out here or usc that have these incredible games programs that you can just the amazing game designers just come out of them and you can hire them straight away. It's a legitimate path. It's amazing how different folks find themselves into games and the little zigs and zags. It seems like you were being forced by the universe into <laughs> like Black Isle specifically though somehow. It's, it's very weird too because even in college, it was strange. Like even though I didn't really know what I was going to do with mm. the training, the academic training I was getting, yep. um, I was confident I was going to make games, except I thought I was going to make tabletop role-playing games. Right. And I didn't understand that's a profession. I was just doing it. Like I was making, I mean, that's where a lot of my time was going is I was making my own game systems and then running them with my friends. And so I was like, of course I'm going to do this. I'm just going to get the money to publish this and then I'm going to publish it. And it seemed very matter of fact to me, but like, cause I didn't understand anything <laughs> yeah. and it, and it, this will sound extremely arrogant, but like when I played D and D even in middle school, AD and D, I remember, you know, because I was playing it a lot um, mm. and play, you know, I would complain about rules. My uh, people playing with me would complain about rules. And I started just saying like, do you mind if I change this? Mm. What if I just change this rule? And they're like, oh, okay. And so I started changing it and then I started changing more and I started changing more. And my thinking at the time was like, <laughs> I, I like, this is, this is literally just writing stuff down and trying it and then yeah. revising it. If it doesn't work, I see no reason why I can't do this. Yeah. And it wasn't even thinking about it. Like I said, professionally, I was just like, I can make games. I am making games right now. I'm yeah. going to keep making games. So I always thought I was going to do it, but I, I didn't think it was going to be like this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how? All yeah. right. So now I want to, I want to skip ahead. I want to, cause you know, I want to hit some of your, you've got, you've got a lot of games here. So I'm not going to hit all of them, but there are some main points that I want to hit. I think externally as someone looking in at your career that, you know, are, they're, they're quite interesting points. So, so the first one is Icewind Dale too. So you've, you've spent time as a junior designer on Icewind Dale. And then just a couple of years later, you're on Icewind Dale too as lead designer. How was that? Like, how did that come about? And stepping onto a project as lead designer the first time was it a similar thing? You're like, oh, I'm just changing things. Did you have that that level of confidence or arrogance, as you put it, just before for that? Yeah, I did. I really was like, I can just do this. Um, yeah. I think if if I succeed as a as a director, it's yeah. because I have a clear vision that I can communicate to people. Yeah, and while my skills and ability to articulate that vision and refine it have improved over the years, mm -hmm. one would hope. <laughs> I think even back then I had the ability to, um, you know, I remember there was a coworker of mine. I won't name his name because he, this is an unflattering thing he said about me where he kind of said behind my back, like he doesn't know what he's, where he's going. I think he said, yeah. he doesn't know where he's going. And I said, and I've heard about it and I corrected him and I said, I know exactly where I'm going. I do not know how to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a fantastic allegory for video game design in general, it is, right? It yeah. is. Yeah. And so I'm like, no, like you're not wrong because I, there was, there was truth to what he was saying is like, yeah. no, you're right. Like I am pretty inexperienced at this and there are things that I'm going to get wrong, but I do really know where I want to go with this. And I can, mm. can explain that, but I do need you guys to help me understand 
how we're going to get there or the problems with getting there, yeah. or if maybe I should reconsider where we're going. Um, and, but even at that time though, I had a really strong sense of this is what I want to accomplish from a development perspective and from mm -hmm. a player facing perspective. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of told Fergus, I was like, <laughs> I can do this. Like, I remember I got, I was doing junior design work and I remember the first time we got business cards and I had been working on Icewind Dale pretty hard and I was, we were doing kind of all, it was weird. We didn't have leads. And so it was mm -hmm. a very strange kind of egalitarian structure. There oh, were no right. leads on the team. There were just yeah. a bunch of designers, <laughs> a bunch of artists, and then like a producer. Yeah. And um, I requested a business card and I filled in designer, not junior designer, designer. Yeah. And I remember Fergus saying designer. And I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm, like, I'm like that's what i'm doing i'm yeah, like i'm I'm doing the same work that these guys are doing and he's mm -hmm. like okay yeah that's fair and yeah. uh yeah so Good again way. whether it was deserved or not i mm -hmm. i did have that confidence and um i was actually i was technically lead on two projects concurrently yeah. uh, although one was kind of frozen i had started on one called fr6 later kind of subtitled the black hound which mm -hmm. got canceled but for icewind dale 2 i wasn't it was another case where i was not the first choice to be the lead i was going to mm. be um you know doing a lot of really instrumental stuff on it but, but not the, the not the lead but the um the the first choice for that job um he really didn't want to do it because the project looked like it was going to be and it was a, a death march really yeah, so okay. he was like sorry guys like i'm not going to stick around for this which i do not blame him for at all yeah um but then because i had been part of the the conception phase of getting the project rolling mm -hmm. uh they said josh you know do you want to be the lead on this i'm like okay like yeah. let's go get, get moving <laughs> we got a whole bunch of content to make and not much time uh, so two questions yeah. then about icewind is you you talk about the vision coming off icewind one being there for conception phase do you remember what your clear vision was for a number because i i've been in a similar situation where i was working on one game under a lead and then the second one was put in my lap and i remember it kind of felt like as as it's my business partner was my lead at the time, my now business partner, fantastic designer. But, you know, naturally you feel that something can go some other way, you know, um, and and I and I love that process of like just being like, okay, yeah, this is what I think it needs and heading forward. And then the second part of that question is your first time in a directorial slash lead role, what were those sort of major touchstones that you learned in the, you know, in the, the trial by fire of that, of, re, of trying to attain that vision on this death march that you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, I think right away. Um, so the, it was not made under the best of circumstances because Interplay, our parent company was going through a lot of difficult times. Mm. And so in some ways it was charitably could be considered like shovelware or uncharitably <laughs> considered shovelware. Yep. And um, I didn't want to do that though. Like I wanted to, make it as good as we could make it. And there were arguments about what the timeline could or could not be. Mm -hmm. um, I knew, excuse me, I knew I wanted to focus on a story about kind of um, the misfits and outcasts of Icewind Dale mm -hmm. kind of banding together to fight against the 10 towns um, yeah. for feeling like they were always kind of othered and like, yeah. you know, whether they were goblins or doppelgangers or half demon cambians or whatever yeah. that was, they all united under the, 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 uh, I think it was the band of the chimera. So they're mm. all like, we're all these kind of misfits, but we're united together by, by this opposition to these people from the 10 towns that are constantly killing us and driving us out. And um, reflecting back at some of the, the stuff from Icewind Dale one very lightly 
Um, there wasn't a whole lot of lore in Icewind Dale to really build <laughs> off of, uh, or maybe I just did a bad job of it, but I wanted to build on that. And I knew that um, I wanted to push us to do third edition D&D yep. because that was kind of the new thing. And yep. I thought the Infinity Engine, by that point, you had a bunch of games and it was looking kind of crusty and Neverwinter Nights was going to come out. And I'm like, man, if we're going to come out with another 2D game, we better do something mechanically <laughs> to really make it appealing. Um, and then with the other designers in the areas, um, cause, because I, I wrote the, this was really a tribal fire. The um, Steve Bacchus and I wrote the plot mm-hmm. and laid out all the major characters and all the areas at a very high level in a 48 hour period, because yeah. we had like layoffs and we had to get everyone rolling. And yeah. so my focus with the areas was to get because the, the, the dangerous thing when you have the ice game is that everything is just ice and snow. And so trying to come up with like some interesting variety Mm -hmm. and take the player to interesting places. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. this constant visual, like I'm just looking at snow everywhere and don't get me wrong. There's still a lot of snow in there. Um, I knew I wanted to have, um, the thread of the narrator, merrily, who's the, the gnome, the, the, I think she's the daughter or the niece of Oswald, mm. the gnome, like uh, the guy who with a flying ship. I know, I knew I wanted to tie her and her narrative into the black hound, which was mm-hmm. the other game I was working on. So I yeah. wanted, uh, she was actually going to be a companion in the black hound. Hmm. And the, in the intro cinematic where you see like the, the kind of like setting of a library and a desk and everything, that's the leaves of learning in high moon. And so that was going to be the actual place. And so I had this grand vision of like, you're going to play, then you're going to play the black hound and your mind's going to be just fucking blown. when <laughs> you're like, this is the thing from the game. Um, so I had like a lot of those ideas, but then a lot of the rest of the stuff was just get her done. And it was yeah. a lot of like the most efficient pipelines we can make. Yeah. We're using as much stuff as we can. We had become very adept at, using the infinity engine and repurposing our levels, spinning them around, recompositing mm-hmm. them, relighting them mm-hmm. uh, to get new levels in there. And uh, it was just a sprint. It was like a 10 month sprint. To it's make amazing what people, an 85 hour game, <laughs> like in those constraints, it's amazing what, so, like I remember, you know, when I worked at a, what could be considered a shovelware company as well, you know, one of those third party studios, just pumping out games, definitely lead on a couple of projects at the same time as well. And it's just amazing the people around you, like the ingenious oh my God, decisions yeah. and tricks and everything that people people make. You know, it's, it reminds me of the classic um, video game development meme of like work dumber, not not harder. You know, it's it's really really incredible what some people are capable of. And yeah. So like, what, what were the? Do you remember a big lesson from your first from your first sort of job leading? Did you walk away from that going like, oh, this is what? a lead is or I fucked that up or yeah I think um you know I I was too part of it was necessity but I was too focused on my own stuff because I had my own responsibilities Mm -hmm. that I couldn't effectively I could not effectively mentor and Mm -hmm. I didn't really have the experience to mentor other people yeah what does it look like at that point in your career even yeah Yeah. it was crazy like who am I to tell these guys anything about like (laughs) especially when it comes to like how to do like I could say I want to accomplish this or we should do this with a combat or whatever Mm -hmm. but when it came to like the particulars of scripting I had Mm -hmm. no idea um Mm -hmm. uh I knew the engine limitations fairly well but um not as well as some of the other developers Mm -hmm. 
excuse me. So my lack of lack of understanding was it was a, a hindrance. Um, and because I had so little time to supervise other people, some of them drifted mm-hmm. and burned out. Um, there's at least one guy I know who left the industry cause he was so burned out afterwards, which is really rough. Yeah. And I don't even know if I had the level of knowledge and expertise to really advise. Like I knew that he was not working smart. Yeah, <laughs> he was not yeah. either working smart nor dumb. He was working hard. really hard yeah. to do something really difficult. Yeah. And, um, and he burned out because he just was banging his head against the wall to yeah. do some crazy things. Um, Even at that and- point in time, there wasn't really, you know, and there, there was chatter about it to some, and to some degree, you know, like this is, but I remember that at that point as well, even a little bit later on when I was at that point in my career, you like, we were doing crazy hours, but you just don't, you don't know that it's bad. You don't, you don't, you have no idea what even, I hadn't even heard the phrase burnout. I, and obviously it's hot, you know, horrible looking back at it, like some of the death marks and so tragic. Like these people, we push these sounds of people out of the industry, but it's like, how can you even help people when you don't know, even as a lead, when you don't know what's happening around you or how, how detrimental it can be, or that there are ways to work smarter. Yeah. And I would say that the other thing too is, I was a little bit better of it by the by the time of Icewind Dale 2. Not really that much better, but especially when I first started on Icewind Dale 1, there was a point in time where I was I was getting some sort of repetitive stress injury in my neck. Mm. And um I realized that I had come to work over 320 days in a row. Whoa. Like, Holy like shit. I had not like there wasn't a weekend day, there wasn't a va- there wasn't a vacation day. Yeah. Um I was living, so I was living with roommates, but my roommates worked, worked with, with me. <laughs> the classic and, game dev thing, yeah. And um, yeah. and I was always at work. And yeah. when I start, when I started stepping away, um, I think it was actually because I started a relationship finally with with a woman. Um, like, yeah. don't and she's like, work. this is insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but then I, but I, it was weird. Like when I was not when I was not at work, like there was one day where I finally was like, I'm just not going to go into work today. Mm-hmm. And, um, I felt so anxious and weird. Mm. It felt so weird to not go to work. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I was just like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I, I don't, this doesn't feel right. Um, but mm. I started to realize like, Oh wow. And the thing is when I say this, one, it's not to lionize it. I don't think it was good. I don't think mm-hmm. I was doing better work because of it. I was getting burned out. Um, but it was also not unusual. Like there were lots of other no. devs who, and uh, like sometimes I went to work and I didn't really even do that much work. I just felt like I needed to be there for yeah. other people yeah. and to just be there. Um, mm-hmm. I think part of it maybe is because when I was in college, I lived in a fraternity house. And even though it was like the nerdy, dry gamer house, mm-hmm. um, the idea of I'm just hanging out with my bros yeah. um, on that work. Really I'm just, I'm, yeah. I'm hanging out with my bros and it's like, yeah, you have no life at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's really um, interesting. I had a similar situation during my crazy hours at the studio that I worked at when I was lead designer. It was like my co-writer and co-designer was my roommate as well. And we would just go into work and come home and we would stay in there super late till 5 a.m. or something doing these, working on just Scooby-Doo games for Warner Brothers or something, you know, but for us, we wanted to make them the best. And I really resonate with before when you're like, you know, everyone's like, oh, the ice game, but no, I wanted to make it a good game. It's like, yeah, that's at that point in time and that point in your career, that's that's how you see it. So jumping forward a little bit, because then you wound up, this is obviously all at Black Isle, but now you're 
you end up at Obsidian. So give us the little the skip hop and a jump over to Obsidian. Yeah, so after Icewind Dale 2, we moved on to do the thing that everyone in the studio really wanted to do, which is Fallout 3. Mm. And but that was like as the as the ship is completely <laughs> like yeah. vertical and going underwater. Yeah. And so, just for some of our you, uh, some of our listeners here as well, when we say when Josh says Fallout 3 here, we don't mean the Bethesda Fallout 3. We no. mean the original incarnation of Fallout 3, which was Interplay's follow up to one and two. Yeah. And it was a new engine and everything. It was actually the engine that was going to be used for the other game. I was the lead on the black hound, mm -hmm. but we lost the license to D and D and that was like a big mess. And so that was yeah. two and a half years of work on my part down the drain. Wow. Um, but we got to work on fallout three, but then mm -hmm. it became obvious really quickly that wasn't going to work out. Mm -hmm. So uh, folks started leaving to form obsidian. And at the time I wasn't really sure that I could go over there. Um, and I wound up for, cause I was like, I've only ever worked with these people in this context. So I went to San Diego and I worked for Midway San Diego mm -hmm. on a gauntlet game. And it was basically, I jumped from one sinking ship to another <laughs> sinking ship. And I was like, oh my God, like I, and I remember this is going to sound so awful, but it's the truth. The first day I started working at Midway San Diego, I walked in and there was someone had written on the, on the whiteboard, Midway will get you halfway there. <laughs> Oh shit! And I was like, I don't think that's a good sign, man. Yeah. Um, it's like it, um, video game graffiti in like yeah, uh, video games. Like that's uh, I don't think that's good. Mm. So Midway was in rough shape then, and the project wound up uh, it was it was rough. So mm. I left before the end of it in part because um, I was like, look, man, I was very loyal to the idea of a company. Yeah. <laughs> And that company was not a thing. It's not people. It's like, and so uh, I'm loyal to people and I respect the people on my team, but I don't want a death march to put out this game yeah. to like make a quarterly, <laughs> you know, goal basically for a credit yeah. line for or something. someone else. Yeah. yeah. Like I, this, like, this isn't what I want to do with my life. Mm -hmm. So I went over to Obsidian and rejoined. Well, it was, it was weird because it was like, this skip the of same two people. years. Well, it was weird because it was a lot of the same people, but then it was a ton of people I had never seen before. A lot of them were super young. Um, uh, and it's weird now because I, I've known them now for 15 plus years. Yeah. But at the time I was like, who is this baby? You know, like <laughs> I'm, you know, like I'm at this point, like 28 or something. And, uh, these are like, you know, 20 year olds and 21 year olds who are coming out of CS programs or now DigiPen and things like that, because yeah. they were, that existed. Yeah, it's um, happening. It's happening. And so they were coming in and we were working on Neverwinter Nights 2. And uh, that project had a lot of problems. Um, I was originally on it as a senior designer. And then after the lead designer left, I took over for the last six months of development. And it was largely a custodial job yeah, where I was okay. just like, all right, folks. Uh, <laughs> just like your university degree as well. Yeah, I'm like, get, get a, Let's go. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, just get get shovels and mops, and we're gonna <laughs> dig this out and clean it up and put it out because it yeah. is really got a lot of problems. Um, so yeah, that was a weird experience because I was back to being a lead mm -hmm. after Midway. I was really burned out, and I said I don't want to be a lead, but that team needed some leadership to get it out. Yeah, and so I don't really feel like that's one of like my games. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like it's a game that I helped and maybe I harmed in some way to get out, but like mm -hmm. it needed, it needed to get out. So um, yeah. And then after that, then I went on to other stuff. Yeah. 
So the other stuff is, <laughs> and this is where I think probably a lot of people maybe came into contact or became aware of you as a creative personally in a big way is Fallout New Vegas. Absolutely. And, and yeah. be, being a part of that, which is interestingly as well, is kind of like you're, you know, you, you got a shot at Fallout 3 again, um, you know, yeah, just coming up after Bethesda's <laughs> iteration on this, the things coming back your way and these coincidences. So, again, right, it's like Bethesda have a shot at Fallout 3. You were already working on it. Talk us through Fallout New Vegas lands in Obsidian's lap and you're like, okay, what are we, what are we going to do? You know, did, I imagine you must have just been exploding with ideas here. Oh, yeah. I mean, because um, we – and it wasn't just me. Like, we had a bunch of people from Black Isle who who had worked on Van Buren, which was the original incarnation. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and then people who had come to the studio knowing of the background and also were like, oh, my God, we're going to get to work on a Fallout game. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we always knew it was going to be a super abbreviated – timeline it was an 18 month development cycle but again like most of my career up until this time um i had only worked on games that were had very short development yeah. cycles or if they had longer ones they were canceled so the idea of <laughs> yeah, making, like, good. We, yeah we want short please yeah yeah um so so yeah like i mean icewind dale one was 14 months icewind dale two was 10 months wow. and then neverwinter two was many years but i only worked on it for the last six months yeah, yeah. really um, so then saying 18 months, I'm like, sure, that sounds fine. Yeah, let's do it's, it. It's it's eight more than Icewind Dale 2. <laughs> we can do this. And, uh, you know, never having worked with the engine before, like yeah. no one on the team had until uh, Jorge Salgado, who was a modder, came mm. onto our team. He had done Oscuro's Oblivion overhaul as a mod. Oh, right. and he, okay. But he was the only person on the team who had any exp experience with Bethesda's with the, tech. Yeah. Because so, they use, they use the, creation, the TS creation kit like in – in-house right or is it sort yes. of different? yeah okay and i guess as well you're working you're working on top of they'd had they finished fallout 3 by the time it was given they to you yeah. fall three yeah yeah okay so cool. we took that and we ran for it and it was yeah. another case it was like icewind dale 2 but i had the i had the benefit of about uh nine years of <laughs> of time between them to be like okay i can be a better leader now and i still think there are big mistakes i made on new vegas but, um, you know, and that was my first role as an actual director. So previous yeah. to any of this, I had been a lead designer or a senior designer, yeah. which, you know, it's not quite the same thing as a director because authority wise, I could be overruled by other departments like animation mm -hmm. or could say like, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Um, and as a director, it was a new thing at Obsidian, really. We had just kind of started instituting it and it was the lead of leads, you know, like actually being responsible for everything at a high level. Yep. And um, that was exciting. Yeah. And it was very fun and thrilling. And uh, yeah, like there were some bumps along the way and it was a little rough, but we came out with it. And when it came out initially, it was not received super well. Mm -hmm. um, not horribly, but just not that favorably compared to Fallout 3. And then over time, it just kind of developed this life of its own and people really started I guess you could say it's a cult classic. So yeah, it um, really has a cult following. It's in, absolutely. It, it seems even, you know, this is this is just an IMO, but I mean, like cursorily, it seems like almost more than a Fallout Three in the sense of like the the folks who are into New Vegas are like crazy about New Vegas. Yeah, they're, they're super super, into super duper into it. Yeah. <laughs> and now an interesting my my last question on New Vegas is really interesting. Josh Sawyer tidbit is your 
mod that you released after <laughs> Fallout New Vegas. So it's so interesting for a director of a video game. Like you said, you have all the power to make the calls and then post-release you you release a mod that rebalances the game. And, you know, how, how did that come about? How did you? Yeah, it's a couple of things. Um, one is um, the audience that the game was released for is not the audience that I made the mod for. Right. Um, yep. I primarily, for Fallout New Vegas, there were a lot of choices I made where I understood very clearly that the primary audience of this are people who liked Fallout 3. So I could make changes to Fallout 3, but I couldn't, I didn't really feel like I could step. Yeah, you're not shifting the audience. That's not your. Yeah, like, don't, like, calm down. And um, the other thing, too, was um, the other thing, too, was that. you know, patching on PC versus console, hmm. uh, those are different processes. Yeah, yep. And so what I did is I basically just, after the game came out and we had done all of our patches, um, I was like, well, I can just use the same tool set at home mm. on my personal computer. And um, I still saved. So like when you work locally, the convention is that you have a, I think it's an ESP file. So and this, this shows the roots of the engine because uh, most of the files you're dealing with are ESMs or ESPs. Mm-hmm. ESM is Elder Scrolls Master <laughs> and ESP is Elder Scrolls Personal, I think. Yeah. Um, but th- this is the Elder Scrolls engine. Um, <laughs> and, um, but like the P is means this is your local, this is your like local thing. Yeah. And you use your first initial last name. So that's why it's J Sawyer. So that's mm-hmm. why the mod is just called J Sawyer. It's like, this is just the, the private working file thing. Yeah. And uh, I just, I wanted to make it the way that I wanted to play it. Yeah. And I wanted to do it without compromising it Mm. for any particular audience. And uh, yeah, so that was my approach with it. And I also was very careful to, you know, I said, this requires all of the DLCs, which some people complained about. And I said, Mm -hmm. too bad. This is for free. Like, (laughs) if you don't like my mod, don't install it. Um, Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was just like, yep, you need all the DLCs and this rebalances everything. Yeah. And this is the way that I think would be cool to play it. And if you don't like it, just either don't download it or get other mods or mod it yourself. I don't care. Um, that's not my concern when I'm making free content for you to play. And there's people still playing with this mod today. Oh yeah. 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 There's, there's a lot of people. I mean, and there are, there are, and there are some people who don't like all the gameplay changes or just don't don't like the changes at all. Mm. Um, but it'll get incorporated into other mods or mod suites. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I, I am glad that a lot of people, even after all this time, still use that in some ways, at least as a cornerstone of their suite yeah. of mods for playing the game. So now the next sort of big step in your career came about with the Kickstarter boom, yeah. which was pillars of eternity, which is an interesting step as well for obsidian because, did it end up being self-published by Obsidian or did you get someone like, but it was, it was largely funded just, you know what, instead of me asking questions, why don't you, you set it up for us. You've done fallout new Vegas. You, this crazy Kickstarter boom is going on. All of a sudden Obsidian comes onto the scene with pillars of eternity, obviously a huge success there on Kickstarter. Um, Very much speaks to your history as well. The kinds of video games that you've worked on too. Tell us a little bit about how that came about pillars of eternity what happened internally at Obsidian for yeah. a little seed to hit Kickstarter? We actually had a couple of um, canceled projects in the interim there. So before New Vegas, I was working on an Aliens game. Aliens That's right. Yeah, game. with Sega? Right. With Sega, and yeah. that was fraught. Um, there was, like, was it, it was an RPG, right? 
It was an RPG. Yeah. It actually aesthetically, superficially, mm. um, kind of looks a lot like Aliens Fireteam in terms of how it was presented, like oh, a third okay. person yep. squad based thing. Um, I actually think Fireteam is pretty cool, by the way. Just just saying that. <laughs> Side um, note, yeah. And especially because I was like, God, that like that looks like a better version of what we were doing. Um, <laughs> but then um, that got canceled. We did fall at New Vegas. And then after that, we made a game called Stormlands that was going to be a third person action RPG. Mm-hmm. And that did not go well. And we had to lay off a lot of people. And yeah, that was I remember rough. Those dark days for Obsidian back then. It was very, that was like the worst day of my career. Um, yeah. A lot of my friends lost their job that day. And that was, I felt very bad because that was my project that got canceled. Yeah. So um, I was not feeling good. And we were looking at doing other pitches. Obsidian as a whole was kind of suffering because of the, everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I think Nathaniel Chapman, who was one of the designers at the studio at the time, and a few other people were noticing like Kickstarter, uh, things like Double Fine Adventure and a couple yeah. of other things had happened. Mm-hmm. And we started talking like, dude, I think we could do this. Like we could do something. There's got to be something we could do. And we were like, I bet if we did an Infinity Engine like game of some sort, I don't know exactly what, but I bet people would be in for yeah, it. Yeah, tap into that nostalgia. They're yeah, not getting it, greenlit at the moment, just like the adventure yeah. game. Yeah, yeah, because nobody was interested in that stuff, especially yeah. like isometric traditional style, yeah. like no way. Yeah. So they didn't even want to do that stuff in the early 2000s. Why would they want to do it 10 years later? Like publishers mm. were just not into it. So, um, but looking at how nostalgia was driving these fan funded projects, I was like, I know that there are enough people out there who want this, <laughs> that we can do this. Yeah. And there was actually a lot of debate internally. The owners did not want to, um, they did not want to do it. And uh, we were going to leave to do it on our own yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and right. it, it really went to the brink. And then the owners were like, okay, okay, okay. Like, yeah. Okay. Don't leave. <laughs> it is a big <laughs> call for a studio that has been making oh, no. these yeah. big games for however long um, to then all of a sudden come out and, you know, with their hat in their hand, so to speak, because sure. that is the next Kickstarter narrative, especially at the time is like this game that can't get made unless it's with your help, you know? Um, yep. So I totally understand that predicament. So yeah, um, we, you know, eventually we, we threatened enough and, um, <laughs> and we got, we got to pitch it and, uh, launch it. And it did mm-hmm. far, far better than we could have ever expected in terms yeah. of the, the campaign. And then we act- had to actually make it and, um, working for backers is a very, uh, interesting process and mentality that you have to get into. And it has its own challenges that are very different from working mm-hmm. for a publisher. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, we did that game and that came out. It was reviewed very well. I think maybe a little better than it deserved, but thanks anyway. And um, <laughs> it sold very well. And uh, yeah, so it was often, I don't think it's an exaggeration in the narrative, although I, I don't think I should get all the credit for this because a lot of people were yeah. pushing for it. But as like the game that saved Obsidian, because um, we were not in great shape. And I will say that morale before the Kickstarter campaign started was really bad yeah and the morale on the last day of funding was like the highest i've ever seen it at the company yeah so I bet. like everyone was, and especially because it's not like oh just we got you know xbox gave us the ticket oh funnily enough you're up by xbox now but you know like whoever a big publisher gave sure. us the tick of approval they're going to sign this project okay here we go again it's literally the people who you're making games for oh, coming yeah. out and saying like no we we want this from you we want we yes and what it was like how much was it funded for as well it was crazy it was um, in the millions I, wasn't it oh yeah it was yeah. Uh, like we we initially asked for 1.1 and i think we hit that in 27 hours 
And then, um, <laughs> and then we had to scramble to be like stretch goals. Um, and then I think when the kicks, when it technically the Kickstarter ended, it was 3.9. Yeah. And then I think we continued getting donations through other means and it got to like 4.2 or something like yeah. that. So like, I think at the time it was like the highest funded game, of course, yeah. other games like star citizen and stuff <laughs> completely <laughs> annihilated that. Yeah, but like at the time, at the time it was uh, like, the main thing was that at the studio, we were just like, Oh my God, like yeah. we're doing it. And, um, that was a really fun process. Yeah. Um, it had, it had its own stresses, but like it turned out very well for us and for the mm. studio. Um, and then we went on to dead fire after that. Amazing. Registration for the 2023 dice summit is now open. The premier video game networking conference returns to Las Vegas from Tuesday, February 21st, through Thursday, February 23rd at Resorts World, and we'll explore the idea of the long game. For more information and to register, visit dicesummit.org. All right, so you've, you've Pillars of Eternity 1, then you follow up with Deadfire, Pentiment. Now this is, <laughs> it's one thing to get Pillars of Eternity off the ground, you know, this game that publishers didn't, didn't want to make, you know, that was no games like that were getting funded. And then for you to follow up with Pentiment, which is even more obscure. Like I can't imagine pitching that. And you didn't go to the public for that. Like that's funded by somebody, right, <laughs> internally over there. Um, so how do you get this? And obviously the, ga the game is phenomenal. Um, Thank you. How do you get a game like Pentiment off the ground. And I think maybe the best way to start with this, sorry, just to, is let's explain to people what Pentiment is for our listeners who, who haven't, you know, or just listened to the podcast and don't actually know what Pentiment is just yet. Give us your brief sort of elevator pitch on this, this, this uh, dream project of yours that you just <laughs> completed. Um, Pentiment is a narrative adventure game set in 16th century Bavaria, Oberbayern, upper Bavaria, that is in the Holy Roman empire. And you play a journeyman artist named Andreas Mahler, who is finishing up his wander um, yara, his wandering years, uh, as an artist working in a monastic scriptorium in the fictional Pearsaw Abbey and uh, boarding in the fictional town of Tassing. And your character is living in one world and working in the other, kind of a bridge between the monastic and the secular world. And one day, a visiting nobleman is murdered. And your friend and mentor at the scriptorium, Brother Piero, is accused of crime. There is no way he did it. And you uh, take it upon yourself to be a, a detective of sorts, prove that somebody else did it or he uh, suffers from it. And then this ties into um, a story that spans multiple murders and crazy conspiracies that take place over 25 years. So... Everything that you just described is is the game that people leave their big AAA studio jobs to make because that never that never gets greenlit no, in, yeah. the, in the pipeline, right? Um, you're a historic, you're a historical, you know, a medieval uh, adventure game, and also I think it's worth talking about um, for those again, our listeners who haven't seen it, the the art direction and the actual, you know, the the viewpoint of the game is just incredible as well because the whole thing plays out like you're in one of these incredible books you're actually part of these incredible paintings you know sort of this you know amazing like a meta realization of andreas Mahler, the protagonist's um, own craft and and it's just so wonderfully executed i mean 
the largest video game publication in the world gave this a 10 out of 10, Josh, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a wild day. But all right, let's do it. Tell me about how Pentiment came about. How did you even, you know, I, I mean, it seems like you don't have any qualms pitching random shit to Fergus. So it um, seems. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It does depend. Like, um, I have a sense of viability. Like, I'm not mm. completely foolish. Um, but <laughs> I also, like I said, I think I know when things are possible. Mm. And, you know, like with the Kickstarter thing, I was like, this can happen. Yeah, this yeah, can work. I, I yeah. know it can. And with Pentiment, I will say, so the end of Deadfire, without getting too lost in the weeds in that, mm-hmm. the the end of Deadfire was professionally and personally kind of a low point, which might seem yeah. weird because it reviewed very well, but it did not sell well. Um, I had the end of a relationship happen right at the end when nah, the game shipped. Yeah. Okay. And so coming out of it, I was like, this sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I we dumped all this effort into this game and there's some haters who say that it's a big step down from the first game. And there are mm-hmm. other people saying that it was better in most ways, but I didn't, I didn't hear the, the good stuff. I was only of hearing course, the haters yeah. and um, you know, the relationship ending and, and, you know, splitting up and moving out and all that stuff was, was really rough. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I don't even want to be around anymore. You know, like, I, was yeah, like I, don't, I, I don't know what to do here professionally or anything. And um, I imagine, can I just make an assumption or a question here as well that like this is at this point, you're almost 20 years into your career as well. Oh, yeah. And it's you've yeah, yeah. not been like doing it in small, easy, gentle strokes. You must have been eternally tired as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was just getting worn out and it was, I think the other thing too was, um, I was feeling very stagnant in at the end of dead fire. Like I wasn't sure if I should direct things anymore because I'm Mm. like, I feel like I've lost all perspective on this. Um, you know, like I, I started in the industry making games like this and I thought I understood like what the heart of these games were, but I'm being told constantly now (laughs) that I don't know what I'm doing. And (laughs) like, And I don't even know, I don't know what's good anymore. Like I don't, it was weird. So, um, I just felt like, I don't know what to do. And, um, and I had some ideas around that time for a game that I didn't really think I could really make, but it was very interesting to me, which was a game I had played night in the woods. Um, which I eventually became friends with Scott Benson, who was one of the developers on that yep. on that game, which I think is just an incredible game and opened the door for a lot of other types of games, including mm-hmm. Pentiment. It was very inspirational to me. And I started thinking about a historical game that was like a side perspective, maybe kind of close to what you see in illuminated manuscripts and woodcuts in the early mm-hmm. modern period, and mostly walking around and talking. So it's small in scope, not a lot of mechanics, nothing mechanically heavy, Mm-hmm. Still having choice and consequence and branching storylines, but no comp- no math, no levels, no. So it's I was like, this isn't a role playing game. It's it's more of a story game. It's it's more like Oxenfree or Night yeah. in the Woods or Mutaz- eventually Mutazione. And I and I had this idea also of doing things with script and type and like handwriting out letters. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I guess this is even before technically my girlfriend, my girlfriend who moved out, moved out because I remember talking to her about the idea and she sounds like. I was like, yeah, each letter is written in a stroke at a time. She's like, I would lose my mind. She's like, that sounds so awful. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, I know what you're saying, but I think I can figure out a way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had these very vague ideas of a thing, and I'm like, I think we could do this. I think it'd be cool. But I was like, I don't. Who's gonna make that? Yeah. Like, really? And uh, then Microsoft acquired us. Mm. 
And in the process of being acquired, um, I talked to Fergus and I said, hey, man, this sounds great for everybody, but I want it to be great for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I said, uh, if I stay here, I want to I want to make this game. And just this one, I don't need to do a bunch of tiny, crazy games. But I said, like, and I'm not going to need a lot of people. I'm not going to need a lot of money. Um, but I think it would be great for game pass. And that Mm -hmm. was my mentality is like, I think Microsoft will let us do this because they just acquired us (laughs) (laughs) and they want to be nice and give us the benefit of the doubt. And I think also it could be good for game pass. And, uh, Fergus to his credit was very supportive right away, which every other conversation we had had for 20 years prior about historical games, he was not very into. Um, but he's like, yep, we can do it. Um, use a small team and, uh, that's kind of how it got going. And it was really, it started with that idea. Then I worked with my art director, Hannah Kennedy, who did mm-hmm. an incredible job yes. on the art style. And, uh, that was the foundation off of which everything else was built. Amazing. And so do you, the, which your game pass pitch correct to Microsoft? Like how was it received on, on the Microsoft side? So the the way that things at least so far like kind of work is when when you're doing stuff internally until you're like really ready to go into full development, mm-hmm. um, Xbox doesn't need to lean over your shoulder and micromanage everything. Yeah. So um, we were just kind of making it, and yeah. <laughs> and we made our vertical slice, and the vertical slice really helped illustrate it far better than words could, yeah. um, because it's such a visual game. Yeah. And so we showed a trailer of our vertical slice to Xbox and, and then explained what we were doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that order of things I think was very critical for them going, we got it. We understand. Yeah. Cool. And, um, they were very supportive and they said, yes, like they were like, this is very artistic. It's very cool. It's awesome that like we can have this be made by a small team within a big studio owned by Xbox yep. and, um, with a focus on game pass, making interesting games that, mm-hmm. um, give players an opportunity to play something that's unlike anything they've ever seen. And they might not yep. even consider buying, but if it's on game pass, why not give it a try and maybe you'll enjoy it. And yep. so, yeah, they were again, to their credit, they were very supportive right away. Very enthusiastic. Um, at every step of the review process, they were like, thumbs up, keep going. So yeah, awesome. went, went very well. Yeah. Hell yeah. And so the <laughs> when you go to Hannah and you tell her what you want to do, because I mean, it's one one of the greatest accomplishments is is easily the art direction, you know, oh, yeah. and, and Hannah's team, no doubt, um, behind that as well. How how did that go? How did that go down? Um, well, I should say, by the way, it's funny. We did have some outside contract help from one other artist, yeah. But ninety eight percent of the art in the game That's was amazing. made by Hannah and Sujin Pak, two Whoa. artists. Yes. Incredible. <laughs> Two artists made a vast, vast majority of so art. So actually, game. that's a great question. You said small team, small amount of money. How big was the team internally at Obsidian working on this uh, with you? Uh, it was five. It was about five, I think, through Vertical Slice. Yeah. And then we slowly expanded to 13 at the end. So I think the Incredible. last development was 13. Yeah. Okay. Our teams are double that. Our indies teams are double that yeah. size. I love it. Yep. <laughs> so, okay. So you you pitch this to Hannah and then this is sort of one part of a larger question that I'm going to ask as well, because it's like, it's not just 
it's not just, oh, we're going to make this game inspired by manuscripts. Like the, the degree to which you've honed in on a particular period as well and particular regions and everything as well. Um, did you, had you been having conversations with Hannah about this game before or was, was she sort of just like thrown on the project and she's like, what are we doing? And you pitch her and you, you're trying to sell her in at that point? Um, I had been, um, you know, like friends with Hannah in a less sort of like close way mm -hmm. um, through work. And I just, I had seen her work and she had done some work for Pillars and Dead Fire, mm -hmm. if I, I think both projects, but it was a very, um, like I wasn't working very closely with yeah. her, but I did know um, that she was an incredible artist. And I also knew just from talking to her and reading some of the stuff she wrote mm -hmm. that she had a very analytical mind. Mm -hmm. And so I had a, a very high degree of faith. Basically, I thought if anyone in the studio can do this, it's Hannah. Yeah. Even without working with her, I'm like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure she can do this. Um, and so, yeah, like, and so she wasn't really, um, I'm not going to say she was like ignorant of this art in this period, but no, it wasn't yeah. really a focus for her. Mm -hmm. But then she really started digging into it, compiling lots of references. And then she did breakdown sheets showing these are characteristics of art in the late medieval period mm -hmm. from different sources and how they were made, what these elements like what the constituent elements are, mm -hmm. what they look like, what they mean, how to replicate that. Mm -hmm. And then she said in the early modern period, when print is becoming dominant, these are the features that are indicative of this style. Yeah. And then with that, what she did, which I think is so incredible is she merged them, not completely <laughs> yeah. blended them together, but like they coexist. So we have elements of painted manuscript style art and mm -hmm. woodcut art within the yeah. game that coexist and many people will say, oh, it looks just like the art from the period, but it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Hannah's style, but because she is so analytical about everything that constitutes those styles, yeah. she was able to make her own style using all of those elements that looks authentic until you really do a side-by-side -side comparison and see the differences. And those differences she made were done, one, both to merge the styles in a way that felt harmonious, but also to work for gameplay and production, like, because yeah. there's no point in establishing an art style that you can't execute on. <laughs> um, but um, she just, from the beginning, again, she did such fantastic foundational work that once we got going, it was very easy to mm. see, this is how the rest of the game is going to look. This mm. is how all of our characters can, can be represented. And uh, yeah. So, it's it's interesting that you talk about the, the period and, you know, sort of a faithful recreation. It's amazing sometimes, you know, even just in like graphic design, if you're trying to reduce something down to its smallest form to, you know, get people to, you, you cut out, so you make shortcuts and everything, but you can still represent something or communicate something even when it's not the same as the original thing. It's, it's, yeah, it's wonderfully executed. Interesting question is this contract artist, were they some kind of specialist that you didn't have the expertise for in, in house? Was it like the scripts or, or was it oh, just so, some more, some more um, you know, some, uh, some more heavy lifting on the project? It was com uh, kind of heavy lifting. I should say all the fonts were outsourced. Um, yeah. Riley Cran and Lettermatic have a full write up on the entire process, which was incredible. Yeah. It was a really great collaboration where, Hannah and I and Brett Kloster, our uh, programmer, and um, Alec uh, Fry, our producer, who wound up doing all the stroke masks, mm -hmm. um, 
we all work together to create this stuff, which is an incredible yeah. process. But for the contract artist, we actually went with Emily Cheeseman, who is a fantastic illustrator. And even though her art style is not like an exact match for what we're doing, mm-hmm. it's close enough that we were like, I bet, because we have so many scenes that go through years and seasons. Yes. Yeah. And we're like, this is a lot of work that needs to be done. But do Hannah and Sujin really need to do it? <laughs> and the answer was no. And so Hannah just wor- worked with Emily to um, to establish what was necessary and the yeah. style. And so, you know, we would have like 80% of the scenes done. Mm-hmm. And then we needed some seasonal variants. But we had the preceding versions. And so Emily was able to take like, this is the original. This is how you interpreted everything else. So mm-hmm. this is how. And I... Going through it, I can't tell what scenes in the end she did versus Sujin versus Hannah. Yeah. So amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so now let's switch over to again. It's, it's just this. It gave me this feeling playing it. Like I remember playing Age of Empires as a kid, and you know, a teenager or whatever. And I was in high school, and we had a geography project where I, you know, we had to study some ancient civilization or something like that. And I just went to my Age of Empires Gold Edition like book that had all of it, and I was like reading in game the descriptions of things, and I literally just like filled out this this project <laughs> with that. And that's that I didn't go to the library or anything. It was just literally Age of Empires, um, and. And I got great marks. <laughs> so nice. one of the best, best marks I got. But there's a beauty to these kinds of video games that are faithful to particular topics, whether it be, you know, science or city planning or history. I felt like I was learning like the moment that I got into it. And there are so many different little narrative mechanics to assist with that. And so one of the things that I'm interested in is you tackle this in for most people, for the layman and woman out there, this is the the history in the specific period of history that you're drilling into and that the sort of context that the player needs, there's obviously a huge amount of work that you've done to help bring the player into that, you know, including the glossary mechanic and everything. So coming into this, how much of that were like ideas about, okay, here's things we can do with the narrative delivery or the narrative design or particular systems to support folks like the glossary. And how much of that was found along the way, you know, approaching this gargantuan task of educating people on 16th century Bavarian history. Yeah. Some of it was, um, choosing to make the narrative more about the individual relationships of people and a a plot that was central to the town Hmm. that I think did the most to help kind of displace the complexities of a lot of the things that were going on. Um, you know, for example, in the second act, also focusing on like the problems of the German peasant war and the 12 articles were felt all across Swabia and then parts of Bavaria and Switzerland and other places. Mm-hmm. But they're also very easy to understand in a visceral sense because virtually all of them are connected to something that is very easy to understand. We're starving. Mm-hmm. You don't have money. <laughs> Yeah. You won't let us fish. You won't let us hunt. We're getting richer. Yeah. Like this, this sucks. And so even though, yes, it's kind of abstracted and it's much larger because the German peasant war covered a huge area. Um, 
but you can see it in the lives of people. You can see it in what they eat and things like that. So a lot of the problems didn't feel metaphysical or spiritual as much as very immediate to the lives of people. The very human just, story at the center. Yeah, and not, not just people, but like these people. Yeah. Um, there are, with the exceptions of kind of the pilgrims that are kind of background characters, mm -hmm. there are no generic or some guards, I guess. Mm -hmm. There are no generic characters in Pentiment. Every yeah. character is a named person who has a life and a relationship with other people yeah. in the community. And that makes it a lot easier, I think, to tell a personal story about the community there. And um, the other thing was the glossary. We all always knew that there was going to be a glossary for terms. We first used this in a game called Tyranny, which I did not work mm -hmm. on, but um, Tyranny started using allowing you to highlight words and see a pop-up definition for usually mm -hmm. lore pillars yeah. of eternity uh also use this because the lore was extremely dense yeah um too dense um <laughs> but then i thought well let's reuse this let's figure out a new way to use this yeah. same basic system but a new way to use it to help fill in the blanks and the limitations of space actually made it i think more effective because we couldn't go on for five paragraphs about who martin luther was yeah, you know we course, have yeah a couple sentences and you're done, yeah. but that's all you really need to understand the story yes. yeah. is like, what's the council of Constance? It's this and got it. All right. Yeah. Okay. Moving let on. me move on. Cause you're, <laughs> you're reading text, right? Like you're yeah. literally, you're all, well, you're not pausing the game, so to speak, but so just for everyone, our listeners who haven't played Pentiment yet, if you imagine like an oxen free or a night in the woods where characters on a 2D plane are talking to each other and we have text boxes come up, on those text boxes, we can have underlined, you know, so say for example, Martin Luther might be underlined. And when you press X, if you're playing on an Xbox gamepad at the time, you end, the game will, the camera will pull out and you can actually see the book laid out there with your game port, like the viewport of your game actually is like an illustration in the book and around the margins. What are they called? Those the illustrations around the margins again? And oh, or marginalia. Yeah, marginalia. In the marginalia is just a little short paragraph that actually explains that thing. And you just press X and you're like, who's, who the fuck is Martin Luther? And you're, or who is Martin Luther again? And you, and, and it is a beautifully succinct description for almost everything. I love when it says a character's name as well. It just shows a face, like a picture of them too. Yeah. And you really, it enables you to really quickly jump out of the game and go, okay, give me the context that I need to enjoy this narrative about these human, you know, this human story and the people of this town. Um, and then be able to dive straight back in with just literally the press of a button. Yeah. And that was actually something that came up during development, the, the, the pictures of people, mm. um, because, you know, I being the, I created every care. I didn't write every character, but I created every character yeah. in the story. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course I remember who everyone is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I made them, but, um, you know, we got feedback where even in the prototype where some people, especially, um, our development director, Justin Britch was playing the game and he's like, I can't keep track of all these names, especially yeah. when it's tons of monks and nuns or like yeah. all these farmers. He's like, there are so many bowers. He's like, cause there, there are, there are two bower families, <laughs> brothers and their wives and their children. Yeah. And it becomes really confusing. And, uh, so he's like, I need some way to figure out and remember who these are. Mm. So we came up with a system that was basically the same foundation as the glossary system, but instead of giving you a definition, it just shows you their face. Yeah. So when someone says, you know, Otto says, Hey, can you say hi to Ava for me? You're like, um, maybe. And then you look and you're like, Oh, Ava, the girl back home. Okay. Yeah, I got that. I can do that. So another interesting thing is that's really beautiful about the game and feels quite singular. And maybe this is my, maybe I have a lack of experience with like particular visual novellas or things like that, um, narrative-based games. But 
it's really, really quite beautiful how the actual text is rendered on screen. And so you were talking before about the, the fonts and the different scripts. When you start the game, it tells you, hey, different types of folks in the game have different fonts to represent them. So we have a high script for, you know, monks or whoever it might be. And the peasants have a different, the peasantry have a different script and everything. But then the beautiful nature of it being written out and even things that are printed are printed onto the actual text box itself, little flourishes, like, a you know, even letters don't repeat in your font sent a lot of the time, the characters don't repeat. We have people making spelling errors and then coming back later on and, you know, a second later and correcting their spelling error or perhaps not. These types of, and you talk about your former partner and, you know, her speaking of the challenges of like, that's not going to happen. What was the process of just that particular part of the game, which is so much, so much of its character and expression is in that. And last night during, I haven't finished it yet, but last night in my session, I was, you know, talking to the doctors, um, uh, Verna's <laughs> doctor friends and the, the beauty of having you know, selected the background for my character of knowing some different languages through the play already and having it translated on the fly. Um, tell me about just the process of the text box and everything that, that went into that. It's just, it's, it's so, so singular. Yeah, I would say it's not an exaggeration to say that dialogue and text and font rendering constitutes the majority of yeah. feature development time. Um, because most of our other features are pretty straightforward. Our mm -hmm. mini games are pretty straightforward. Our quest system is pretty basic. Um, yeah. But uh, the, I guess the journal and that stuff. But but when it comes to the fonts themselves and how they're displayed, um, a lot of work, a lot of iterative work. Um, you know, different techniques for rendering strokes, different ways of you know, like when we first started with the, the initial idea that I had when talking to my my former partner, where it was like, you know. I'm drawing the H and the A and it's mm. that, that was awful. Like either it was one of two things, either it was so fast that you really couldn't see the strokes coming in at all, mm -hmm. or it was unbearably slow. So I came up with an idea pretty quickly, which was when 20% of a glyph is drawn, the next glyph will start drawing. Yeah. So that way the speed of strokes coming in can still remain slow enough for you to perceive them, but the whole line gets written in faster because at, at one point five, at any given point, there's basically four or five letters being mm. drawn in concurrently. And that just cascades through the whole sentence. I never even uh, noticed that. That's amazing. That's a great, great um, example <laughs> of how natural that feels once, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, yeah, it's kind of subtle, but yeah, if you, you can actually, not that anyone does this, but if you slow you can slow down the speed that mm -hmm. text comes in. Almost everyone speeds it as far yeah. as, as fast as they can to get through <laughs> it. But um, if you slow it down, you can really, really see how it goes. Yeah. And then once we got that in, then that started feeling good. And we, we, you know, worked with Riley about the idea of stroke masks. We went back and forth as to whether or not it should be procedural, meaning there was some process by which we were taking data from like the ductus data, the mm -hmm. actual stroke data from the creation of the font into something that would work in the game to rent, render it out automatically. And no, um, basically I was, I was skeptical and it was a lot of unproven things. And I was like, yeah. we had already done some basic, I had mocked up something where we used three channels, like the RGB channel and the alpha to determine a series of strokes. And then that was like, okay. And then our programmer, Brett, he reconstituted that as like, okay, we're going to, we can do it this way. And so, 
we came up with a, a thing where we'd work in Illustrator, make the stroke masks, ex export them. And that was time consuming, but it was very reliable. Mm. And so I said, we are going to John Henry this. We are going to just do it all by hand, wow. um, which is very meta. Um, so <laughs> I, th I think it was, I think they said it was like wound up being 2,700 glyphs of which maybe 2,400 were hand scribe glyphs. Yeah. And so um, uh, Alec and Ethan, who came on toward the end of the project to help out with a few things, yeah. they did every single stroke mask for every single character in the game. But um the result is very beautiful yes and it feels very authentic and then we started doing other features we added in um the wet ink feature mm -hmm. where when it first comes in it's it has a little bit of three-dimensionality to it mm -hmm. it's very dark and it has a gloss it has a speck mm -hmm. on it so it has a specular highlight then it it gets sucked into the page that's an actual kind of procedural animation from the outside in then the opacity goes down a little bit and there's a bleed effect that we put on so the handwritten stuff actually um you can see under the parchment there's kind of a reddish thing where it's soaked in and bleeding on Bleeds the edges out, yeah. um and then we also have some stuff with the stroke masks where where the strokes overlap on a character it gets a little more opaque because you're yeah. obviously putting down more ink on top of ink yeah. and then for the cursive font which is the it's the one in between peasant and like mm -hmm. the super crazy monastic that one um we have a, a sort of loaded pen mechanic where when the line starts the strokes are over full they kind mm -hmm. of go beyond the boundaries of the glyph procedurally and so it, it looks like the pen is too full and then after a few strokes it kind of goes to the normal glyph and then after a few glyphs it starts getting less opaque it starts mm -hmm. going down in transparency and then it reaches a point where there's a brief pause in the writing of the line which represents re-dipping the pen and ink <laughs> and then the next character is overloaded again and that continues through the entire thing um i think the other things that we put in past that we have the rubrication which is writing in things in red or, yeah. or blue or green afterwards mm -hmm. we have the frantic script where there's ink spattering because yeah. the person yep. writing is angry um and then the printing one was a completely separate because that's not coming in stroke by stroke. No, of course, yeah. But we have the, um, and that took a lot of iteration because it was either frustrating or not present. So yeah. we have um, the first time a character in a scene who has print speaks, they do the sorts, which are the metal typefaces upside down, left to right, yep. come in, then they're inked, and then they press into the page, and there's like a press animation. Um, and we do a procedural um voids and um over inking mm -hmm. so some of the letters have too much ink and so they kind of again are a little bleeding and blurry and then other parts have a void where it's not inked enough and so there's just ink missing from the letter form on the page yeah and uh yeah that's i might be missing some features but like that's that's like all of that stuff um, i love it. even the way that you talk about it, it you can tell that you've been in this for <laughs> for 18 months that it feels like you need you needed that pressure release valve to just be like here we go this is it this, and it sounds like some some tech artist's dream as well like the, the challenges here it's it's just it's just so so beautiful thank you um, interestingly like again going back to the the period of it and you know seemingly as well for you know i'm i enjoy my history but i wouldn't call myself a history buff it 
it it is so engaging and it seems like there's so much work has gone into it. I'm interested in the research period or the research along the way. You're obviously part of the Xbox Studios family and everything now with a huge amount of resources at the tip of your fingers should you need to call on it. Um, did you have, you know, um, historians consulting with you or on, on the payroll, on the project? Um, what was that process like for Josh leading up to this and, you know, bringing in Tate and folks and, you know, the work that you're doing there and then the actual, you know, support from Xbox and, and others during the project? Yeah. Um, you know, I came into it with my my academic training because <laughs> even though I wasn't a good student, I, I was passionate about the subject matter. And um, and I kept, you know, like I kept all my books from college that still mm -hmm. I would still go back and reference them mm -hmm. um, because I still used history in the development of other games that I worked on, especially the Pillar series, because it's like faux 16th century Europe in some cases. Mm -hmm. But um, so I had that. But then early on, we consulted with uh, Christopher de Hamel, who is one of maybe the most famous manuscript expert in the world. Wow. He has a number of like best-selling books on manuscripts, uh, which are incredible. I had a few of them. I, I basically cold emailed him from finding his, um, I found his email address on the faculty page for Corpus Christi college. Um, <laughs> and I was like, sure, do you want to do this? Let's go. Yeah. I, he was skeptical, but I met with him in London, um, when I was there by coincidence and he was, he was open to it. So he gave me a lot of information about the feasibility of some of the basics of like, mm -hmm. A professional artist like would a scriptorium exist he's like probably not yeah. he's like if it would it would be one of the last ones around because this is largely transitioned either to print or professional artists working outside of a, a sec or a hmm. in a secular environment yeah um but you know he helped me contextualize a lot of that stuff which was really great advise us on and that that in particular is contextualized really well it lends so much character to the story and yeah. um and up really ups the stakes in a major way. You know, that the fact that the scriptorium is, is a rarity for those times. Yeah. It's a rarity and it's on the way out. And yeah. in fact, like, you know, this isn't spoiling much. You go into the second act and it's, we're done. Like yeah, it's, just seven years later, it's like this, this isn't sustainable anymore. Yeah. Um, so he helped inform a lot about the basics of like, you know, I was like, could an artist have a university education? He's like, probably not. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and he said, there are circumstances where it could be possible. He said, maybe if his father were connected to someone like in a university who had influence, he might mm -hmm. be able to get a special case. And that was written into the story. Um, Andreas's father is also an artist. He did work for the University of Erfurt and the rector gave him this favor of allowing Andreas into school. And then he's a dropout, which so many people in who played the game are like, this is targeting me because I'm a college. I, I dropped out of my doctoral program or whatever. Yeah. I'm um, in this photo and I do not like it. Yeah. Exactly. And then, um, you know, I, uh, we also had Dr. Edmund Kern, who was my advisor in college, Winston Black, who was actually a classmate of mine, but now he's, uh, you know, a professor and published uh, on medieval medicine, which mm -hmm. even though this is the early modern period, a lot of the medical practices were still effectively medieval. Yeah. Um, and and then on my own, for my own part, like we got, uh, I did a lot of research with JSTOR. Mm -hmm. um, there were places where my academic abilities kind of reached their limitation, and I would have to consult with Ed or Winston about certain things just to kind of go like, I don't. I don't know anymore. Like I, I can't, <laughs> yeah. there's only so much I can find. Um, and they're, they're experts. So rely on the experts. And yep. then, um, 
you know, we also had Zoe Franznick came on as a writer kind of late in the project, and she has a background as a uh, medievalist and doing manuscript studies. Um, she also was a Latinist and a Latin teacher. Hmm. We, we additionally had a Latin consultant who goes back to my college days because I went to one of the few universities in the United States that has an undergraduate classics program. So I reached out to my friend Heather Nabafeld, who um, is a teacher at Boston Latin School. <laughs> and uh, she was, so we had three tiers of Latin where I know Latin reasonably well and I can do a lot of the basic translations. Then Zoe was like the next tier, yeah. and especially when it came to manuscript stuff. And then for the super like intense stuff, we would go to Heather and say, like, Heather, how would we do this? And she would, she would help us with that. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I mean, we have a bibliography published because we really did consult a lot yeah. of books. Um, and articles, scholarly articles. And sometimes I would reach out, um, Dr. Deborah Cashin, mm -hmm. uh, I remember reaching out to because I read, she had, she was part of a compilation of, of books on basically art creation and production in this period. Mm -hmm. And I kind of hit a dead end and I, I was just like, well, she's the editor. And so I emailed her and I was like, can I just ask you this question about this thing? And she was super helpful. And I said, do you want to be a consultant on the game? And she's like, I don't have time, but I'm glad you're doing this. I hope it gets people interested in this stuff. <laughs> I, and I, I said, I'll give you a special thanks. And she's like, great. Awesome. So yeah, um, it's, it is funny because I remember talking to some academics early on about this project and um, I can't remember who I was talking to, but she said, the money will be great um, because it's academia, but I think they're just going to be happy that anyone is coming to them sincerely wanting to hear them like go on and on about their thing yeah, these as much as possible. And, and that's kind of the case. They're like, yeah, like yeah, I'm going to tell you our... all about it. So yeah. they're, they're just happy to be part of the process. Um, but yeah. The best part I've, you know, I've seen, you know, just various things you've posted on Twitter recently and in your replies, you've now got these like, um, uh, history sickos, you know, like, and weirdos, yeah. <laughs> all, the, all the history buffs from around the world that you've smoked out. Very yep. specific. Like I saw one, it seemed like a lovely, lovely guy was asked a question about why the pig's fat and not skinny. Yep. <laughs> it's like really, it's really impressive when you, I mean, and what a, what a great little um, testament to the work that you've done, that these people that you've rallied, those people that you're, you know, that we're talking about here, these experts in their craft, that finally this game that's come out, uh, everything's about dungeons and dragons or swords and wizards <laughs> and witches. And now finally something about <laughs> scriptorium in 16th century Bavaria. It's an, it's an amazing, amazing um, just subject matter. And so... One of the things I loved about working on licensed games was, you know, the first game I ever worked on was I did some writing on a game called Zoo Hospital, but the next one was Monster Jam Urban Assault. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not a monster truck guy or anything. And, you know, Monster Jam's an American license. So in Australia, I was like, okay, what's this? And by the end, I had like a gr little grave digger on my desk and we, we <laughs> took the team to see the monster trucks and I, and you see the appreciation, like you see the beauty when you're, when you're sort of forced or whether it be by choice, you know, to dive into something, you really can see the beauty that these other folks, these experts that we're talking about, the, these buffs see in it. And so did you see across the team, across this, you know, um, you're a ragtag bunch from Obsidian that you'd pulled into this little Wiley history project of yours. Did you see their their interest in these things like shift and peak over time? And Yeah, I think, um, you know, I don't think that every single person working on the game is like the number one fan of, of everything <laughs> in the game. But um, I did see a growing appreciation for 
everything we were doing in the game. Yeah. And some people really got into a lot of the stuff in a, in a very sincere and genuine way. Mm. And um, I think for me, you know, like, like I said, it was, um, I felt very burned out at the end of dead fire mm. and um, I wasn't sure what I should do. Um, but this is all I really know how to do. <laughs> and um, I going back to my musical background and my musical theater background, um, one of my big inspirations was always Stephen Sondheim, whose music I love. But mm. also when I started seeing interviews with him and reading the things uh, about his life and his meant his sort of approach to teaching and and making music, uh, I really gained an appreciation of him as a, as a human being. Mm. And he, there were two things that he really impressed, which was like, teaching is more important than any other thing that you can do. And you can teach through your work, but you have to also teach outside of your work. Yeah. And like, and he, um, you know, there's like the, some great videos of him doing like master classes where he's advising young singers about how to interpret, which mm -hmm. I, I just, I love watching all those both because of his interactions with them, but also his, his warmth. Like he is, mm -hmm. he is teaching them important things, but he's doing it in a very uh, just kind of warm way that I, I kind of took a lot from that. And then also um, he talks in, there's a film called six by Sondheim where it's kind of a documentary about his life. And he talks about doing, uh, he did a show that was really done for money. Like it was like, this is going to be quick. It's going to be easy. It's going to make a lot of money. And he was like, it was the wrong mentality. And he went, he went into it kind of not feeling great about it. And he came mm -hmm. out just feeling absolutely awful. And he concluded that love is basically the only reason to do anything, which mm -hmm. one of the characters in, in Pentiment actually says that very explicitly <laughs> at one point, like yeah. there's no reason to do it if you don't love it. Yeah. And so um, I tried with Pentiment, everything that we did, like obviously I'm considering an audience playing it, but I didn't do anything with, you know, gritted teeth. I didn't yeah. do anything under duress. Everything yeah. was done because I loved it and I wanted to share that love with people. Yeah. And I believe that that did wear off on the team again, to a certain extent, I don't think they're all crazy 16th century <laughs> art fans. Um, but I think that's the thing is that tons of people who've played the game have said that they feel that level of respect and care for the subject matter and the passion for communicating it with other people. And it's such a beautiful loop back to the start of our conversation where we came into this podcast talking about your love for cycling and you know, battling with trying to get parts throughout COVID or even being able to get out on the bike. Um, you know, and after such a, such a long and storied career that we've now stepped through, do you think that is like, what is the sort of the key for you now? I mean, like coming, especially after such burnout and everything coming off dead fire and into pentiment, are you, are you finding more of a balanced lifestyle is obviously, you know, like helping you out. Is it the love thing? You know, what do you, what do you reckon, Josh, in the last few minutes we've got here? And if we're talking about teaching, perhaps for our, our younger developers that are finding themselves in that period that, you know, you and I were in our mid twenties, you know, when we just want every game to be the best and willing to throw ourselves on the pyre. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I will say again, you know, going back to something we talked about at the beginning, luck and privilege have played a large role in me. Yeah getting into the industry, surviving in the industry, getting as far as I have in the industry. Um, the fact that I kind of made kind of an ultimatum to get this made is also mm -hmm. privilege. Like not a random person can't really get away with doing that. Yeah. Um, 
So it's very, it would be very cavalier for me to say like, <laughs> everybody only work on things that you love 100%. Yeah. But I will say that if you don't, if you don't have love in your life, it's going to be really hard to get through, <laughs> get through what you're doing. <laughs> and sometimes your love is not in your work. Um, and you got to just do what needs to be done to get through it. Uh, but I think it's that absence where you're just kind of completely bereft of it. That's very difficult to deal with. And for me, um, I don't know in the future, I think maybe for this project, like I've been love pilled. So now I can't, <laughs> it's like, if I don't really love it, I can't do it, but I love a lot of things and I can find love in a lot of things. Yeah. And, um, and hopefully I can communicate that with other people and get them as, as stoked or at least half as stoked about it as I am <laughs> to make more things. And I don't know if that's going to be more small games. I don't know if it's going to be narrative games. Maybe it'll be big games. Maybe I'll go back to, I like guns too. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like, shoot some stuff every now and like, then. Yeah. Good, I mean, that's like Fallout New Vegas. Like I actually yeah. did like doing all the gun research and things yeah. like that. I like bicycles. I like art. I like, but there's a lot of things that I can find love in and um, I can find something to, to grab onto mm. and to hopefully pull teams into that and get them enthusiastic. And obviously yeah. the bigger the team, the harder it is to get everyone yes. on board, but that's part of the job. And um, yeah, the hardest part I think is when, if you don't believe in it, especially as a leader, if you don't believe in it, nobody else mm. is going to believe in it. And if you don't have passion for it, it, you can't infect anyone else with a passion that you don't have. So you got to find something to love and what you're doing. And like you said, sometimes you go into something and you're like, I don't, I don't know anything about it. Maybe I'm yeah. even a little off put by it, mm -hmm. but um, let I'm me give it a shot. Else. Let me dig into it and find out what other people love about it. Mm -hmm. And it's not always going to work. Sometimes you come out of it and it, it's just not your thing. For example, with, I'll, I'll just give this brief example. I hate casinos <laughs> and casino games, but um, I knew people would want them in New Vegas. And what I came to love is I love cards. I love mm. card art. I love, I love the aesthetics of the table and animations and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And so even though I'm like, I don't really like this stuff, but I know some people like it and they love the randomness and they love the, the feeling of winning. I was like, okay, I can embrace that and I can embrace the aesthetics and the, the coolness of the animations and the sight mm -hmm. of the cards turning over. I do like that stuff genuinely. And I got into that from the presentation angle and the rest of it, I'm like, all right, I hope I did an okay job and people are okay <laughs> with it. Um, so sometimes it, it's, you know, you got to find what you can love about it to bring to it. Uh, but yeah. Find that love in what you do and outside of work as well. Yep, a beautiful definitely. place to leave it, Josh. Well, thank you so much to join uh, for joining us here today. And again, huge congratulations to yourself and your team. I mean, the broader Obsidian crew and the folks over at Xbox who, you know, backed you and every review gave you the thumbs up. It's such a beautiful thing to hear um, that, you know, these big titans of industry as well are supporting such phenomenal projects, you know, who, who would have thought it 10, 15 years ago. So um, congratulations again. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.